selling smoothies is what I do. But for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast presented by Salesforce. We're here at the Super Bowl. I'm here with my uh, friend and NBC colleague, Miles Simmons. Miles, um, I missed the mayhem of Monday night, and I, I don't regret having missed it, but do you, can you share with us one highlight from the mayhem of Monday evening with both teams getting uh, lobbed softballs and hand grenades by uh, some of the hardest-hitting journalists in America? Listen, I, I don't blame you for not going. That was probably a very good decision on your part. You've been to enough of these, you know, that you don't need to do that anymore, Peter. I, I will happily take that for you. Good. Um, but I, I think one of my favorite things that I heard was somebody asked Andy Reid, start, bench, cut, in and out, five guys, in Shake Shack. And he said, I'm not cutting anyone. I'm not starting any one of them. I'm, 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 I'm not cutting anyone or benching any one of them. I'm starting all three. Because that's the kind of person Andy Reid is. He's not, he's not saying no to a cheeseburger. Hey, look, I, you know, I didn't know that. But that is, there can't be a more classic Andy Reidism Because this was maybe four or five years ago. And I told him that I was going to be coming to training camp. And, uh, and this was the year that... Um, training camp didn't go away because of COVID. So I guess it was three years ago, maybe. But anyway, he said, uh, when are you getting in? And I said, oh, about 6 o'clock, say Tuesday night. I forget what night it was. And he goes, you got to go have the best cheeseburger in the Midwest. And you got to go get Town Topic cheeseburger here in Kansas City. So I went to Town Topic, and Andy Reid was not lying that was a darn good cheeseburger and look I just I just think there are some things in life that you trust and one of them ladies and gentlemen is when you hear Andy Reid talk about cheeseburgers you should trust his advice on the cheeseburger so on that inside football note let's talk about the things we are going to discuss in our podcast okay so I'm going to just leave for a minute, Miles, the Super Bowl topics, the game topics, to the second half of the pod. The first half of the pod, I want to talk about the three coaching situations that, to me, are really interesting. Number one, that Arizona looks like they are having a bunch of people say no to them. Indianapolis looks like they really are not sure what they're doing. They now may undergo a third round of interviews with some candidates. And Denver, I think, basically 
we now understand why Denver is going to be a team to be reckoned with because anybody else who was interested in Sean Payton knew that they were going to have to outbid a team that has a good defense with a problematic quarterback situation. And Sean Payton was happy to ride in on his white horse for five years and 90 million or so. But I want to talk about those three things. And I really, I kind of want to talk about when when the Super Bowl is over, we start talking about the draft. And the one thing that really interests me in the draft this year, the Chicago Bears are number one. They certainly are going to want to trade down. And how many teams are really going to get in the derby to trade up? And I think there are three in the top ten who will want to trade up. <coughs> so, we're going to get to those things. And then on the back end with the Super Bowl, I got th- three things that are my overriding thoughts. Number one, what physical condition are these quarterbacks going to be in? Because, Miles, I, I don't think that Jalen Hurts is going to be able to throw the ball the way that he normally would like to throw the ball. I think he is still feeling the effects uh, of what happened to him in Uh, December uh, against the Chicago Bears. Um, And obviously, Patrick Mahomes is not going to be as mobile as he would want to. That's number one. Number two, I think we're seeing the best offensive line, certainly of the last few years and perhaps of this century, because the stats that they are putting up and the lack of pressure on Jalen Hurts right now is historical and and so I want to get into that and then finally I want to talk a little bit about Nick Sirianni he really interests me in part because and you will appreciate this being a Cleveland guy and having so much great not good great small college football being played in that area (coughs) because Nick Sirianni went to Mount Union Mm -hmm. in Ohio and, I mean, Josh McDaniels, uh, John Carroll, and, and all these other guys. And so I really want to get into what I believe is something that we don't talk about enough, which is the farm system of NFL coaches and how amazing it is that they are all, so many of them, are from small colleges. So we're going to get into all that on the back end and my ride to work the other day with um, Nick Sirianni. I want to start by opening up and just asking you. Right now we got two coaching situations left. Um, We have Arizona and we have Indianapolis. What do you make of the Arizona situation as somebody who, you know, you live out here, you've covered this division. What do you make of the slow process of them getting this job done? I I think it's interesting, and I think it speaks to a a couple of things. A, they know that they have to get this head coach right for Kyler Murray, and that's not something that's particularly easy to do, but you have a quarterback that you signed to, let's call it a franchise deal, last year, and now that quarterback is hurt. So you're not even going to have him for a substantial amount, probably, of the 2023 season. 
but by that same token, you need him to be developed by whoever comes in as the head coach. And so whether that is a defensive guy, a Lou Anarumo, or it's an offensive guy, Mike Kafka, it now is not going to be, I think we can say pretty definitively, Brian Flores, who agreed to become the Vikings defensive coordinator. When you see something like that happen, yeah. you know that Brian Flores and or his agent has been told, yes. you know, you're probably not going to be the guy. Right, exactly. Yeah. And when that happens, it's like, okay, well, how do you then pivot to what exactly you need? Because I think, Peter, we, we probably know that they need somebody to come in and be more of a disciplinarian than they had under Cliff Kingsbury, right? And, and that's something that we see all the time with co- head coaches. You know, one guy is supposedly a really big players guy, so then they come in and they bring a disciplinarian then on the back end for the next head coach. Or it can be the total opposite, right? You had a players coach before, and then you come in and you bring that disciplinarian. I don't know exactly what that means for the Cardinals, but it seems like, at least from my perspective, that job does not seem particularly desirable. No. It's not a desirable job, and I think the difficult part of it now, I had a conversation with Sean Payton last week, and he could have seen himself taking that job. Mm -hmm. He liked Michael Bidwell. He had a lot of his questions answered, Um, although Kyler Murray is not necessarily his cup of tea at quarterback, I do think that he might have taken that job if Denver didn't uh, go after him. But the fact is, the Arizona Cardinals now are going to their deep bench. Mm-hmm. And think about this. Lou Anarumo was not... Let's think about the time involved here, okay? So the, the, the AFC Championship game was played on a Sunday... And as of the Saturday before that, Louis Anarumo had never been contacted by the Arizona Cardinals. Right. So think about that. That is uh, basically, you know, you are two and a half weeks into the coaching search by now, and you've not even been contacted by this team. So it's clear that they've gone to their deep bench. And I will just say, Miles, you're absolutely right. Teams, after having... Basically, what has been described as kind of a a poor communicator and not a disciplinarian in Cliff Kingsbury are going to go to a little bit of a micromanager with a hard, uh, you know, side to him. Yeah. That would be Lou Anarumo. Mm -hmm. And I think Lou Anarumo is a very, very interesting uh, guy in this job. However, my first question is, okay... You know, the most important thing you're going to do has very little to do with the defense. It's how are you going to fix Kyler Murray? Right. And that's where, to me, Mike Kafka would have an advantage over him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we've seen from the New York Giants would seem to tell you, okay, this guy knows how to come in and develop an offense, how to coach offense. And Brian Dayball certainly has a lot to do with that as well. But when Mike Kafka's calling the plays and you see the plays – some of which kind of reflect that Chiefs playbook that we have gotten so accustomed to seeing, the creativity, especially inside the five-yard line. You know, a lot of teams try to mimic and emulate that, 
But one thing I noticed from the Giants was that they actually knew how to run those things. Whereas sometimes you see other teams, like I, I can think of a couple Bengals plays that I saw over the course of the season, where they're trying to do something similar like that, but they can't actually do it, probably because they don't know what the exact teaching points are. So that's something to me that would be a really big thing in Mike Kafka's favor is that you know that this guy can coach offense and he's been around some of the best offensive minds in the game. The thing I like about Kafka is that I think he's an imaginative person, um, you know, and I think he's he learned a lot under Andy Reid. He learned something under Brian Dayball this year, and you see Daniel Jones doing more imaginative things. You saw him in the uh, playoff game to a Statue of Liberty play, a version of that against the Vikings. So I think that would sell Michael Bidwill probably more. My gut feeling is, if it comes down to those two, mm-hmm. my gut feeling is it'll be Kafka. But, you know, we'll see. Indianapolis. Oh, boy. Okay. So I think Indianapolis, one of the things that's interesting about the Colts is that at the start of this process, I said – there's absolutely no way they can give this job to Jeff Saturday. <laughs> you can't do it. One in seven gave up, uh, you know, the worst, uh, uh, whatever, whatever, the biggest comeback, uh, you know, in NFL history and all that yeah. stuff, you know, in Minnesota. But I think it's more than that. I think it's that, you know, it would be really, I think it would be Jimmy Ursay against the world. No doubt. And... Uh, I don't know that you want to saddle your coach or your franchise with the incredible snowball of negativity that would come with naming Jeff Saturday the head coach. And, you know, Jeff Saturday might be a great head coach. You don't know. But he's hardly done anything to deserve it to this point. And, that, and that's why I think that they go in a different direction. Well, I would like to think that that's true, <coughs> you know, with Jim Irsay understanding what that would look like. I think that the way you just put it with the snowball of, you know, negativity that would come, I mean, absolutely would be that. And deservedly so, because look, Jeff Saturday was 1-7 in seven as a coach, and his one win came against the Las Vegas Raiders, and we know that the Las Vegas Raiders did some really bad stuff over the course of the 2022 season. So that, that game did not surprise me, and then they were one of the worst teams in the NFL after that, and you know, he can say all the things he wants about how oh, that wasn't the way that I would do things, or you know, if I come in, then it's going to be different, and I would hire these different coaches and all that. But to me, the perfect counter to that is, well, Steve Wilkes was with the Carolina Panthers, and that wasn't his coaching staff. That, those weren't players that he picked. Well, really anything that he wanted initially as his team, but still came out and competed, and those, that team went 6-6 six and six under him. So I just, the more you see uh, Jeff Saturday's name kind of still floating around in there, and we've seen in the Indianapolis Colts interview uh, an unbelievable number people for that job in some ways it seems like they're setting themselves up to say we were so thorough in this process and at the end of the day we still kept coming back to Jeff Saturday and if they want to do that you know go on ahead I it but it's going to be one of those things where everybody's going to really criticize them for it 
and frankly, we'll probably all be right, just like we were about New England's offensive coaching situation last year. Yeah. Um, you know, what interests me, and look, I don't know who's the leader in the clubhouse in Indianapolis, but I do know one thing, that anything that has Peyton Manning's fingerprints on it uh, is going to be something that... Uh, that is held in high esteem by Jimmy Ursay. And uh, Peyton Manning has been glowing in what he has said about Brian Callahan, the Bengals offensive coordinator, who has had a second interview for this job and who essentially, uh, you know, was kind of Peyton Manning. When Peyton Manning was in Denver, uh, Brian Callahan was the low man on the coaching totem pole that year. And Peyton thought that he was fantastic. <clears throat> but he's obviously he's the son of uh, uh, Bill Callahan, Bill Callahan yeah. yeah, the former Raiders coach and the very highly esteemed offensive line coach. But I guess, I guess the thing that really interests me about that is that, you know, it would be another mild-mannered offensive guy. Hmm. Okay. And not, not that there's anything wrong with Frank Reich's ethos or anything like that or, or Brian Callahan, who by all accounts is a terrific guy and all that. But I just I wonder if that is the way they will choose to go, knowing, as you said, a lot of times you don't want to pick the exact same kind of coach. But right. anyway, we'll watch that. But I, I would watch out for Brian Callahan. That's, he's an interesting candidate. Okay. I know how to run a hair salon, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. She's a small business owner, too, so she knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Throw in some music. We can watch the game. Or we could keep it simple. Corona, la vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. I just wanted to spend three minutes on the draft and just talk about a couple of things that I know that... I think are going to be interesting as we look into the draft. Um, look, it's whatever it is, 10 weeks away, but everybody always loves dealing with it, talking it about it. It seems so soon, 10 weeks. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> it might be 11, but I think it's about 10 or 11 weeks. Well. Anyway, so as we sit here right now, the, the uh, Chicago Bears have the first pick in the draft, and the, uh, uh, the right now a team that needs a quarterback, Houston, is sitting number two, Indianapolis is sitting five, mm -hmm. and Carolina is sitting nine. You would think that those three teams are the rock solid. They're picking quarterbacks somehow, some way. Uh, Chris Ballard, 
I think is going to try to be aggressive to get up to number one to take the quarterback of his dreams. And I won't be surprised if Luke Getze and and um, Matt Eberflus and Ryan Poles in Chicago fall in love with a quarterback that they try to move up from two to one. And that would still leave, if that happened, that would still leave the Chicago Bears with the best defensive player in the draft, whoever that might be this year. So I guess I would just say to you, so how likely do you believe a trade down with Chicago is? And if they do trade down, you have a gut feeling right now who a team is coming up for. Do you think absolutely they're coming up for a specific quarterback or just tell me your thoughts well I think if you go up to number one then you have to have a specific quarterback in mind yeah and I think back because of course this is my experience with it but in 2016 when the Rams went from 15 to number one overall and you know the debate was oh my gosh they don't know who they're gonna pick it's gonna be Carson Wentz or Jared Goff it's gonna be Carson Wentz they knew exactly what they were doing when they went up from 15 to 1, and they thought it was going to be Goff. And I remember Jeff Fisher saying behind the scenes that they thought Jared Goff was going to be special. So that's one part of it. So I, I think if you are Houston at 2, if you are you know Carolina, if you are the Indianapolis Colts, then if you're going to make that move, you've got to be extremely convinced of who it is that you're going to pick that you are going to <clears throat> excuse me give away certain assets to move up that high because it's going to cost you something. And even if you're Houston at two and you want to make sure that you get the player at one that you want, then you're going to have to give up something in order to get there. So then the other part of that, I mean, it's kind of funny. You got a division rival in the AFC South and the Colts who are also looking for a QB. So that kind of sets up more of that interdivision rivalry that the bears presumably can take a little bit advantage of. So, I mean, if you're the bears and you think, man, I could flip this thing to number two, maybe if Houston really wants that pick, and then I could flip it again and go further down and get more assets. That's something to me that would be pretty attractive. So I don't know. You just mentioned something that will not surprise me a bit. Let's just say that the Bears go down to number two, and let's just say, and we're going to have a lot of debate in the future about what exactly that would be worth. But let's just say that they either get two twos or maybe Houston's one next year. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's just say. Um, so if they're sitting there at number two and they know that they can have any defensive player in the draft and know that there's a very good likelihood that Jalen Carter would be the Georgia defensive tackle, would be the first guy that you know, would seemingly be on their list. You know, the other thing I would just say about them is that, you know, they also, if they go down to number five to Indianapolis, they're going to be in position to get either, let's just say, you know, the best edge player in the draft, Will Anderson from Alabama, or the best receiver in the draft. And I know the TCU guy, um, I forget his name, is is one of those guys but you you if you are thinking to yourself we want to get maximum ammunition and if they can get let's say a one and a two from 
uh, if they get a one to move down to number two, and then maybe a one and a two to move to number five, let's just say, and you sit there then at number five, and you can still pick maybe the best receiver in the draft. You've added two future ones uh, and maybe a two. I think that would be a slam dunk Absolutely. for the Chicago Bears to do. Well, and one thing Houston also has is Cleveland's first-round pick. So that's some, that's more ammunition that they can use and still not necessarily yeah. put themselves too far back for the future because they got that in the Deshaun Watson deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're going to be monitoring that in the next you know few days, few weeks rather. Um, I think it's so early, and I'm always hesitant to say a lot about the draft this early because you just don't know. But I do think what makes this draft so fun and so interesting, honestly, is that there are teams, there are at least three teams in the top that I think are going to be aggressive, one moving down, two moving up. So we'll see exactly what happens. Miles, we're going to take a break right now and – I'm going to come back with a uh, surprise guest, and I only say it's a surprise guest because, quite honestly, as we record this, I have no idea who it's going to be. That's some transparency for you, folks. So, so, anyway, I do want to say that we're going to have a surprise guest. I don't know who it's going to be, but it's going to be really exciting whenever we do decide who it's going to be. Anyway, we'll come back with more on the Peter King Podcast right after this. So, we're with Howie Roseman, the general manager of the Philadelphia Eagles, the NFC champion Philadelphia Eagles. Howie, I gotta ask you two history questions that I've always wanted to ask you, okay? Number one, Mm -hmm. how could you have known when you were nine years old you wanted to be a general manager of an NFL team? I feel like there's there's Jeopardy music going on in my my head. You know, um, I watched my first game um, it was the year the Jets went to the AFC Championship game, A.J. Dewey, two interceptions in the Orange Bowl, pouring rain, Richard Todd quarterback, Walt Michaels was the head coach. I mean, you're going to really call me out here? And um, and I was hooked. And I had nobody in my family who was hooked. And so, you know, I'd go outside every day, and I I, I thought I was going to be the next quarterback of the Jets, and I'd play. And, and um for some reason, my mom wouldn't let me play, you know. And, and listen, I wrestled 119 pounds um, when I was in high school. So I, I get it, you know. I might go to sport. Yeah, and uh, Central Jersey. And, um, and so I get that part. But I loved it. I couldn't stop obsessing about it. And I love building teams. And so, you know, when I realized I wasn't going to be an NFL quarterback, I was like, I- I'm going to be an NFL GM. And I used to tell people. And they just totally just, like, laughed me off. And I think it got me even more determined and persistent. And the world was a different place then. Now you, you press a button, you can connect with anyone, unfortunately. You know, it's much easier. But it was harder to do it then. And so it, there was something about going in the direction of your dreams at the time. But that's a true story. I, I always had this in me. I never really had a different path. You know, when I got out of the University of Florida, nobody would hire me. And you, know, Did you really pester Joe Banner at the time running the Eagles. Did well, I, I got to be to be. I did, but to be fair, I pestered thirty-one other teams. Um, and it, Joe, pester, what are you doing? Writing them letters. Writing letters, That's calling the, the assistants. There was no email at the time. This is for even before email, you know. So um, it was just it was it was different, you know. And the only two people responded to me 
for all those years, because I really started, I started in high school and I kept doing it through college. The only people who ever responded to me were Joe, who basically said, we don't have anything. Keep us apprised of your plans. I think that was like the direct sentence. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to keep them freaking apprised. <laughs> and, um, and Mike Tannenbaum, who called me and said, I don't have anything for you, but I'm looking through my resumes. And after every resume is you thanking me for rejecting you again. And, um, and he said, so I'll give you a couple minutes. And so I, at that time, I was like, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll go get my law degree. I went to Fordham. And uh, maybe someone will hire me to do CAP. And I'll get my foot in the door. And I know I'm going to convince them to let me scout. You know, but just fortunate to be around good people. When you get hired by the Eagles, the one interesting thing that you have said a few times is how significant Andy Reid was in your football life. Okay, so now when you look back on it, hmm. and you can you can now think back on the lessons you learned from Andy Reid, what would you say particularly have been big things in your football life? Yeah, so you're talking about someone with this untraditional background, and you have this Hall of Fame coach who is willing to make you their GM, you know, 34 years old, and... Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how much that means to me still and how much he means to me. And the time he would spend talking to me about his philosophies or when we would watch a player together talk to me about things that maybe I was looking at, that he was looking at different areas and made me better. And he was always teaching. You know, he's always coaching, always teaching, not only the players, but his coaches and his staff. And, um, you know, I say this like he's he's a first bout Hall of Fame coach and um he would be a first ballot Hall of Fame GM if he wanted to. Um, he's got a great perspective on how to build teams, how to evaluate players. And so, you know, being around him was special. And um, I think obviously like that there are certain things that I bet, you know, not this week, but I bet if we go to the combine and I'd say to him, you know, like, what do you like about our team? He'd say the same things about what I like about his team, right? It, it starts with the lines. And um he was obsessive about it, and I, I, would, I would hope that the people I work with on a daily basis think I'm obsessive about it. Is, let's talk about that obsession, because Nick Sirianni claims to have the same obsession, your head coach. So your defensive line, to me, is unique in recent NFL history. Mm -hmm. You have nine players on your defensive line who on a given day could play between 10 and 38 or 40 snaps in a game. Mm -hmm. And, you know, earlier in the year, Brandon Graham said, you know, it is absolutely crazy that I am still productive at my age, having gone through everything I am. And you know why I am? Because they're using me in the right way. Yeah, well, he's telling himself, short. he is a phenomenal player well, with pheno phenomenal well, physical ability and phenomenal work ethic. You don't want to be playing him in his 13th year, right. 52 snaps a game. Right. But, okay, so how did you arrive with this team figuring that we were going to play a lot of guys, probably less snaps on average, maybe than many of them would like, but we're going to keep them fresh for 17 games? Well, I think it, it goes to an overriding philosophy about making sure that not only do you have great starters on both lines, but you have great depth. And, um, you know, our best teams, whether they're with Coach Reed or whether they're with Coach Peterson – you know, whether they're with Coach Sirianni, it's about the depth on the D-line. And, and that's no different than five years ago when we were in this position. Obviously, you know, we got to play this game on Sunday, so I'm not declaring anything other than, you know, we it's a formula that works. And having, 
guys who are able to stay fresh. Um, you know, Coach Reed will say, bring fastballs off the edge all the time, bring fastballs to the quarterback. And um, I think probably if you ask me the most underrated storyline of our season, I think our D-line gets a little bit um, underrated. You know, um, they have 70 sacks on the season. I mean, that's an unbelievable number, um, you know, throughout the year. Uh, getting consistent pressure on the quarterback, changing games. Uh, it helps when we have the offense that we help and obviously, you know, getting the lead and let it, making teams one-dimensional. But our D-line as a whole, I mean, four guys, first team in NFL history, have four guys with more than 10 sacks. Um, you know, we have a fifth guy in Fletcher Cox who had seven, and I, I thought Fletcher had a phenomenal year. Um, and I think it really starts there, and it allows our linebackers to do their job. It allows – our secondary um, to not have to cover as long when they're getting consistent pressure. And, um, you know, it's been a formula that's worked for us up to this point. Why did you make Hassan Reddick such a priority early in free agency? Yeah, I mean, Hassan Reddick, uh, you know, I, I may be wrong on these numbers, but I, I think 26 and a half sacks over two years. He had eight forced fumbles over those two years. Um, you know, we had 29 sacks a year ago. And um, we know he can play in Philly. You know, he's from Camden. Home games were – I played for Temple. Um, home games at Lincoln Financial Field. Um, and he just uh, – like you know, all the work we did, all the research we did on him was just like, this guy fits. This guy fits. And, um, you know, I, I thought it was our number one priority going into free agency. Um, and we really felt like we had to get him. I want to ask you one question about Jalen Hurts because I think, and not in any way that I knew anything at all, but I loved the pick of Jalen Hurts in 2020. And the reason I loved it is not because you're bringing Jalen Hurts to take Carson Wentz's job. That was never why you drafted mm -hmm. Jalen Hurts. You draft Jalen Hurts because, for a few reasons, but one of which was... You really wanted a good backup quarterback, a building backup quarterback that you didn't have to pay eight or ten mm -hmm. million dollars to, mm -hmm. and a guy who had some different, who had a different skill set, you know, who can play the game a little bit differently, and is going to be a tough guy for a defense for defenses to stop. Think back to when you were scouting Jalen mm -hmm. and what really put you over the top with him. Yeah, the, the the resiliency, the overcoming the adversity and continuing to grow from it. And, um, you know, when you think about it, just his career, he comes in, he was a four-star recruit at the University of Alabama, number one dual-threat quarterback in the country, wins SEC Offensive Player of the Year, wins SEC Freshman of the Year, goes to the national championship game, comes back the next year, right, gets benched, stays, stays. I can relate to staying, right? Um, and um, tries to learn and tries to get better and goes to Oklahoma as a Heisman Trophy finalist. And he had just this, this will to be great, this determination. And he had the skill set to do it. And, you know, I think back to that pick, and, and it, it was hard. The reception was hard. Um, for us, though, it was, you know, we were paying backup quarterbacks. No team in the NFL since I've been in the NFL has benefited more from the backup quarterback position than the Philadelphia Eagles. And we felt like we had to get back to grooming one and we love Jalen's skill set. You know, coach Peterson deserves a lot of credit for that too. He was on board with it uh, from the outset. 
Um, you know, we had played in six playoff games at that time. Carson had it, hadn't played more than a few plays in it. And we knew that it was too important. And at the end of the day, whoever we were going to pick at the end of the second round, if we hit on them, would they have the same impact if we hit on Jalen? And we knew the answer to that. And, and we knew we really liked Jalen. And so um, I'm not sure that probably we thought the feedback, it was going to be uh, that aggressive. Um, I don't know why that that would have affected it. Why it was ridiculous? Here's the real reason why it was ridiculous. If you look at NFL history, once every two or three seasons, a great team needs a backup quarterback to save its season. Right. Happens all the time. And you have a choice. If you want to leave yourself, and again, have nothing to do with this 49ers thing is weird because they had so many quarterbacks. Yeah, for sure. Year. But unfortunately, they had to go to Josh Johnson in a championship game, even though that's not the same thing, obviously. But you treated the backup quarterback like he's one of the most 10 most important players on your team because if you need him he is there's no doubt one of the there's not and we, and we had needed one you know including playing in the Super Bowl yeah. and um we had been through so many playoff games you know I go back and we played in 2003 in the championship game Donovan McNabb got hurt um Coy Detmer came in you know in 2006 Jeff Garcia took us in 2010 Vic took us after Kevin Cobb, you know, Nick Foles in 2012 took over for Michael Vick. You know, obviously Nick came back in, in 17 and did that. And um, we came back in 18, Nick came back and played in the playoffs. 19, Josh McCown's playing in the playoffs. So, I mean, I, to me, with our experiences, how, how couldn't we do something like that? And, you know, it's ironic because I think, you know, I think we picked him 56. Did we pick him 56? I, I don't know if I remember that right. But, Let's just say we traded back and took him at the beginning of the third round. I actually think there would have been a different conversation just because you take him at the end of second versus if you take one and three. And, um, you know, that, I'm very fortunate to work with an owner who gets the big picture. And um, he, he's okay with not only win, not winning the initial press conference and doing the right thing. Okay, got two other things to ask. Sure. One is... You are famous, you and Jeffrey Lurie are famous for the length and the involved coaching interviews that you do. Nine, ten, eleven hours, how, however long they are. They're long, okay? And I wonder, when you interviewed Nick Sirianni, it wasn't like he came out of left field. It wasn't like it was an Andy Reid hire in 99. Mm. You know, that one came out of left field. Sirianni was a well-respected mm -hmm. guy. But tell me, in that, in your long fact-finding about Nick Sirianni, what caused you to say to Jeffrey Lurie, I think this is our guy? Well, I, he, again, he deserves a lot of credit, too, because at the end of the day, he's making the hire, and he goes with, you know, he, he's done unbelievable. Everyone he's hired wins divisions and ends up doing really well. Um, but I think for us, you know, it was a unique circumstance because obviously with Coach Peterson, we had made the playoffs three of the last four years, including winning a championship. It wasn't like the day after the season. It was after a series of meetings um, that they had. So we started a little late. And so, you know, we, we, I, our kind of marching orders to our staff was, listen, we understand that a lot of these coaches are probably already hired. They're probably down in direction after a week of these interviews. Let's look at it like – 
if we were a year from now, who do we think would be the best candidates? We got first pick at next year's hottest candidates. And, um, you know, like sometimes things just happen and you remember them. And I remember when Frank was going to interview for Indy and, and I said, who's going to be your offense coordinator? And he said, I've been telling you about Nick Sirianni, my wide receiver coach of the Chargers. And, and he says it just like this. And he goes, and I'm just telling you, he's the best coach I've ever been around. And that's who I'm hiring. And I remember thinking at the time, man, you know, Frank, you know, we had just hired Frank, quarterback. We had hired our quarterback coach, quarterback, Coach Peterson, quarterback. And I'm going, all right, you know, he's kind of hiring this, uh, this receiver. And he was so adamant about that. And when we would, we would talk to people from Indianapolis, they'd go, man, this guy's unbelievable. Like, he's a heck of a coach. But I always remembered Frank saying that. And um, we brought him in, and he was with his family on vacation. Um, in Fort Lauderdale, you know, so he comes in this white minivan, a lot of swag in that. And, um, and really like he, he's like, I don't got a suit or anything. And I was like, that's awesome. None of us will dress up either. It's great. And he came in, he had jeans and like this, this like little pullover and, and, um, we just started talking and, um, we'd ask him a question and he'd coach us up, you know, he'd talk to us, you know, we'd say, Hey, talk to us about quarterback play. What are you looking for in quarterback play? We know you've had different kind of quarterbacks. And, you know, he'd get up and he'd, he'd show us. And you felt like, shoot, maybe, I mean, we couldn't, but maybe, maybe I could go play right now, you know, because of how he's doing it. And he had this infectious personality, but it came with knowledge and presence. And um, the things he believed in, just like talking about offensive and defensive line, it, it wasn't, it, it was aligned with what our values were in building a football team. And, um, you know, obviously he's done a phenomenal job. When you talk about the interviews being long, you know, it's a weird process because it's like, you know, I, I'm married. I, I, I dated my wife for two years. We had a year and got three years, right? Three years. Well, you basically got to marry someone after interviewing, I don't know, twice, you know, twice and spending this amount of time with them. It's tough and you got to be right and you got to see through. Like, you know, you think of those first couple of dates whenever you go out with someone, everyone's on their best behavior, right? And you don't really know just like you don't know in a relationship, you don't really know until you face adversity. And um, that's always the question. How is someone going to face adversity? And I think, you know, um, what did you see in him? I think Coach Reed and Coach Peterson, they were so consistent every day. And so you don't know until you go through something. And, and um, when we went 2-5 and five and we came back from Vegas, I remember, you know, our security guy, Dom DeSandro, who's like, he's not our security guy. He's like the assistant to the GM, like yeah, everything we do, everything. everything. He's unbelievable. And I remember, you know, getting on that plane to Vegas and like walking out uh, as we were waiting for it to be loaded and turning to him and going, Oh my God, like, where are we right now? Like we're freaking two and five in Vegas. And I go to the front of the plane. I see Nick and he goes, Hey, what's going on? And I'm like, he's like, we, we, we got a long way to go. You know, we're going to be all right. And I was like, we're going to be all right. You know, and um, that was the moment for me. And we rolled off, you know, obviously, I think seven of our next eight and, and made a run. And I think that was the moment for me where I said, yeah, he's, he's going to be really good. You know, if whatever happens on Sunday, at some point in the next week or so, somebody at Wharton calls you and says, you know, we'd love you to deliver a lecture to our uh, to our MBA class. And uh, the topic of the lecture that we'd like you to say, talk about to these young, impressionable people is 
what is really important to be a good general manager in the NFL. If you were given that assignment to talk to really smart people, what would you talk about? I think it's no different than being great in, I mean, I've never been in any other field, so I'd say in any other field or being a great player, um, you have to be resilient. You have to understand that uh, things are going to happen that you don't want to happen. You're going to make mistakes. It's how you overcome them, how you um, kind of make sure that you're continually learning, continuing to get better, having as many good people around you as possible. We've had phenomenal people here at every level that allow me to do my job better because I don't have to worry about them doing their job. Um, so surrounding yourself with the best of the best, um, being able to admit your mistakes and not being so prideful that um, you can't see it uh, because I think that affects your culture more than anything else is when everyone knows you've made a mistake and then they feel like, hey, he's just hanging on to this for himself as opposed to what's right for the team. And um, being relentless, being determined. You know, I think that um, when you're passionate about something and um, you get to go to work every day, I mean, every day I drive through those gates, um, I feel lucky to be part of this. And I don't take it for granted one day, one minute. And obviously our fans don't let me do that anyway. So I don't know that that's an option. But uh, I think that when you do all those things, when you're passionate about what you do, um, when you're able to continue to learn and get better, when you understand you're going to make mistakes, but when you compound them by not admitting your mistakes and learning from them, and then you surround yourself by great people, you have a chance to have success in any field. Howie Roseman, thanks a lot. Good luck in the game. Thanks, Peter. Selling smoothies is what I do, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. So back on the podcast, uh, Miles, let's break down some elements of this, su- of this Super Bowl that really interest me, okay? Because, after all, it's my podcast, so I want it to be it. about me. Okay. <laughs> So the first thing, I, I, let, I want to talk a little bit about Nick Sirianni. So in my column this week, Football Morning in America, uh, I rode to work on Saturday, uh, which is now we're recording this on Tuesday. So a few days ago, I rode to work, crack of dawn, four degrees in Philadelphia. And um, I rode to work with Nick Sirianni uh, in his kind of nice tricked out Jeep. And um, so I'll tell you two things that really interested me. He is a classic 
all-time meat and potatoes Midwestern football coach. Love it. That is who he is. But the thing that I really took from him is that he's not necessarily stuck in uh, the way your grandfather coached football. He is going to be bold on fourth down. You've seen that already. He's going to follow in sort of the Doug Peterson footsteps. And, you know, the other part of it with Nick, with Nick Sirianni is that I think he just believes that there are some universal truths about football that should make all people in football kind of happy. Because what I mean by universal truths is that the same thing wins at a small high school in Jamestown, New York, where he went and where his dad coached him. And the same thing wins uh, at Mount Union, uh, you know, a Division Three power in Ohio, which is where he went to college. He played for three national championship teams. In one of those national championship games, Nick Sirianni caught three touchdown passes against Bridgewater State of New Jersey. Anyway... But the point I wanted to make was I asked him about what he took from his upbringing in football. And I thought he was going to say, build good lines, run the ball, run the ball, run the ball. You know, like, you know, Woody Hayes. But, But he said, players, players make the game. Players make the plays. And he he told me a story of of Larry Karras. His coach at Mount Union, uh, who won 11 national titles, that he came in when Nick Sirianni was the offensive coordinator in Indianapolis, I think three years ago. And he came into a game and he asked to see the play sheet before the game. And he goes, Where are your plays for number 13? Meaning T.Y. Hilton. And he looks at the play sheet and Sirianni has got like 10 or so plays specifically for number 13 for T.Y. Hilton. And he goes, good, good. Always remember, it's the players, players, players. And I think that might be something that would surprise people a little bit about uh, a pretty conservative coach from, uh, you know, who got his, you know, cut his football teeth, you know, in Division Three football in Ohio. Because you would think that, Hey, listen, we have a scheme. We have players. You fit into that scheme. That is not how he was raised. And that is why I think when you talk to the players on Philadelphia, especially like A.J. Brown, uh, you know, Miles Sanders, you find that they love this offense because it's always different. I mean, what in the world did Kenneth Gainwell do in gaining over 100 yards well, they saw something in that game that they said, we want to use this. And so I just I find it really interesting that a guy who is steeped in this traditional football would come away from it thinking, you know, it, whereas Bo Schembechler once said, it's the team, it's the team, it's the team. <laughs> you know, Larry Karras said, it's the players, it's the players, it's the players. Yeah. So I, I don't know. What was your impression of what you read about Sirianni? Yeah, I, I love that anecdote that he had, that you had about the coach coming in and looking specifically for plays for T.Y. Hilton because that was the one of the best players 
on Indianapolis's offense. And if you're not scheming things up specifically for a T.Y. Hilton, then it's kind of like, well, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Right? And, and I think we, we sometimes hear about this with different head coaches or different coordinators, whatever, and they talk about their system and how you run the system and all that. But I think the most successful coaches have always been you have to adapt the system you have to the players that you have. And when you do that, that's when you get things that are successful, right? Andy Reid has been so successful for so long because he adapts the system to the players. Now, it helps when you've got great players, but I think that those things are always married together, right? You do things in your system that you tailor to Patrick Mahomes because you have Patrick Mahomes. You yeah. scheme up things for Travis Kelsey because he's one of the best tight ends of all time. It's, and this is sort of random, but... Jadavion Clowney had a little quote before the end of the season, you know, that kind of got him in hot water with Cleveland and basically got him sent home. But he was saying that he was sort of upset that the the Browns coaches were scheming things for Miles Garrett like they wanted him to be in the Hall of Fame. And well, my response to that would be, well, what the hell are the coaches supposed to do other than scheme for their best player? You don't not utilize Miles Garrett in the ways that you think are going to exploit offensive weaknesses. So I, also, I say all I have to say, like, that is one of the best things that I think you can have as a coach is when you understand that it is about the players and scheming to the players' strengths. Yeah. Because otherwise, how are you going to win games? Yeah. You know, I think now one of the things that I, I think it's I, I think one of one of the things that we don't think enough of when we talk about why are coaches successful is in this particular case, Howie Roseman and Jeff Lurie both strongly believe in coaches using analytics to the fullest. Mm -hmm. And that has become kind of a controversial thing around the league. But when you see what the Eagles did with Doug Peterson in making fourth down, you know, they so many times they were in four down situations all over the field. But I bring that up because in the first half of the NFC championship game, you know, it was almost taken for granted that you were playing four downs offensively with the Eagles unless it was just, you know, fourth and 11 and you're at your own 22, Yeah, you know. And the, the reason why I think that is interesting is that Nick Sirianni might sort of give off this uh, ethos of, you know, Midwestern football, conservative, all that stuff. But I do think that he has really bought into that hook, line, and sinker and totally believes in trying to make the game the offense putting the pressure on the defense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah it, it is. And, and when you are doing that, and I think that sometimes, I don't remember if I was discussing this with you or with Florio on PFT, but it's one of those situations where sometimes I feel like offensive coaches have a mentality of dictating that defensive coaches don't always have because on defense it's inherently reacting. And when you're on offense, you do that. You attack. You attack, you attack, you attack. And, and when you are going for it on fourth down, as the Eagles do, that does put pressure on defenses to make sure that you have the right combination to stop whatever they're going to put out there. And, you know, we saw it in the beginning of the NFC Championship game where they go for it on fourth down. Devontae Smith makes the catch, and then they come down the field, and they keep the pressure on, and they go score. 
that is something that if you have that kind of thing in your mentality, that's why the Eagles are where they are. Because they know how to keep attacking and keep the pressure on different defenses. The other part of the Eagles right now, Miles, that um, that I think has been so important to their development as a team, and I mean, think about it. In the span of five years, they turned over the coach, the quarterback, and most of the skill players mm-hmm. on the team, and they're back in the Super Bowl. Yeah. And but the one thing that we know that they still have. And I reminded Nick Sirianni of this, that when I was sitting with him in his parking space for like the last five to eight minutes of our conversation the other morning, Jeff Stoutland, the offensive line coach and run game guru, parked his car in a parking space in front of him, and he walked by and waved to the coach, and I said, Nick, this is so eerie, but I did this with Doug Peterson five years ago, and the incredible thing is Jeff Stoutland walked by Doug Peterson's car and waved to him walking into the building (laughs) as we were just sitting there. And I said, this is a little eerie. And so he loved it. He said, you know, good omen for us. I was going to say, right, yeah. But here's the reason I bring up Jeff Stoutland, okay? So some of the people have changed. I mean, Jason Kelsey hasn't changed. Uh, Lane Johnson hasn't changed, but they've changed three guys on that offensive line. And when you look at how this team has played, and I used a stat in my column the other day. How about this, Miles? They have faced three excellent defensive fronts in the last six weeks. Mm -hmm. Dallas, Uh, the Giants in the playoff game. I don't count the Giants in the regular season because Dexter Lawrence and Leonard Williams did not play. So Dallas in the regular season, the Giants, and then San Francisco, uh, who you might argue has the best front seven in football. Mm -hmm. And in those three games, the front players for those three teams had zero sacks and zero hits on the quarterback. And I just, I, I'm, I'm in awe of that. Yeah. If, if you can keep Nick Bosa and Dexter Lawrence and Leonard Williams and Kayvon Thibodeau uh, and uh, Micah Parsons and Demarcus Lawrence all off your quarterback, this is, to me, a fantastic offensive line. And I've thought back, and I made this statement, and I probably will live to regret it, but (laughs) this could well be the best offensive line that has played football in this century. You know what? I think we can look at this line. We can look at what they did in 2017. I mean, it's sort of saying this is making it probably a little too basic, but look, when you see what they did in 17 and how they won, it was front four on defense, you can rush with four, and front five on offense, you can block, whether it's pass blocking or run blocking. I mean, yeah. how, do you win your, how do you win a Super Bowl with a backup quarterback? You better keep them clean. And they were able to do that. And so now you look at it. Well, how do you do it? Front four on defense. 
You know, you've got guys who are really talented, and you've got guys that you can just rotate on in there. You know, that's how Fletcher Cox has been able to keep doing what he's doing. Brandon Graham playing fewer snaps almost than ever before, and yet still has the pass rushing production that he does. Hassan Reddick, 16 sacks. I mean, these dudes are awesome up front on defense. And then you look at it on offense, and you get Jason Kelsey anchoring the thing at center, still doing what he's been doing for years and years and years. Lane Johnson at tackle, you know, keeping Nick Bosa off the QB despite not being fully healthy. And he's still, you know, I don't necessarily know how healthy he is, right? So all of those things combining together, you see what the Eagles are doing, and you understand why they have been great all year. So that sort of leads into, you just mentioned it, Miles, about the Philadelphia front, and they basically are rotating eight or nine players. If you think that, you know, Brandon Graham, the last time they were in the Super Bowl, was a 40-snap-a-game player. Now he's... 12 to 15 mm-hmm. you know Robert Quinn barely plays but but the attitude uh, by by this coaching staff basically is we're going to rotate guys in and Brandon Graham who had a sack of Daniel Jones in the fourth quarter of the game against the Giants is going to still be fresh yep. you know late in games and at 35 you, I think he's 35 34 so the other the other thing that I find interesting is that the Eagles, maybe because of this freshness, maybe just because of the ability of these guys, have had an incredible record in the um, next-gen stats era, which is since 2016. No team has sacked the quarterback more without blitzing in a season than the Philadelphia Eagles. Think about this. They've had 77 sacks this year. 75% of those sacks, three-quarters of those sacks, have come while rushing four or fewer. So I bring that up because, look, Patrick Mahomes already is going to have a tough job because his receivers are banged up. And Juju Smith-Schuster, I think they're going to put Humpty Dumpty back together again to play. Kadarius Toney, but... How long will they last? How good will they be? How, you know, how, and, and, and so Patrick Mahomes, to me, I said to somebody on the airplane coming out here, hey, Peter, how you doing? Uh, I'm kind of betting on the game. I said, don't do that. Do not bet on football. It's dumb. <laughs> but he said, wait, you got one thing for me? I said, whatever the over-under on yards is for Kelsey, bet the over. Yeah. <laughs> because... You know, that this is what they got to do. But the one thing I would say, Miles, is that if Kansas City wins this game, Patrick Mahomes is going to have to play an incredible football game, yeah. I think, because he's going to be throwing against a seven-man coverage unit almost exclusively. It's going to be Mahomes, obviously. He's going to have to be special. And we know he's capable of being special. I, I have no doubt about that in my mind. Travis Kelsey, they're going to have a plan for him, too. So can the Chiefs run the football? That's what it's going to be to me. And they're going to get Clyde Edwards-Alaire back. He came off of injured reserve as we record this Tuesday. That was Monday. So that's one element of it. But it's going to be Isaiah Pacheco. I really think that he and Jarek McKinnon are huge X-factors in this game. You know what, Miles? I said this to somebody watching the AFC championship game the other day in the press box 
uh, or uh, last week in the press box, I said, you know, this reminds me a little bit of two years ago when you kept watching the games and Tony Pollard was better than Ezekiel Elliott. Mm-hmm. And I just kept saying, I, I, I don't care what you pay each guy. Right. You've got to play Tony Pollard more than Ezekiel Elliott. He's better than Ezekiel Elliott. And I feel the exact same way. I don't care that Isaiah Pacheco was a seventh-round pick. I don't care. And I don't care that Clyde Edwards-Hilaire was a first-round pick. Isaiah Pacheco is a better and more forceful runner of the football, in my opinion, than Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. And I think you're going to see him, regardless of the health of Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, get more touches on Sunday. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, listening to him at media night last night for a few minutes, what he kept saying was, oh, you know, this is a place where it doesn't matter where you come in or how you come in, but I just knew I needed to produce and I needed to be ready for my opportunity. And when you have a guy like that who understands that, that's why when he gets the opportunities, he's able to excel the way that he did. And, and you know, I, I think it's just an absolute credit to him and a real credit to Brett Veach and his staff that they understood what they could get with an Isaiah Pacheco and then for him to take advantage of his opportunity. Man, you can't say enough about it. The way that backs are drafted today I have no idea why anybody would ever take a running back in the first round look I love Saquon (laughs) Barkley but if you look at that draft and see him pick number two and then look at all the players the Giants passed on in that draft you just shake your head I love Saquon he's a good player even though he's been hurt too much or hurt a lot I whatever but when you see Isaiah Pacheco, the 240th pick or whatever he was, play the way he does, I do not understand why you would take running backs early in drafts. Not only that, but just signing him in free agency. Now, if you have a good enough scouting staff, then in theory you should never really have to sign a running back to a premium contract in free agency. Yeah. You just shouldn't. I mean, you can get guys like a Jarek McKinnon who are coming off of whatever they're coming off of, and you get them as a free agent, and you plug them in, and you understand how they can play. But, yeah, it, it's, it's unfortunate because, I mean, I know that these guys, they get pounded running the football, and it's all that, but, you know, just a reality of team building is – you can get running backs if you have a good enough scouting staff and you know what you're trying to do offensively. You can get them in pretty much any place. All right, Miles, our last thing as we close our pre-Super Bowl pod, uh, the Peter King podcast presented by Salesforce, we're going to pick the game. Oh, boy. And if you don't mind, I'm going to pick first. It's your podcast, bro. Okay. I'm going to pick first. And first of all, I, uh, the player I respect in football the most of any player in football is Patrick Mahomes. Uh, he has the will of very few athletes I've ever been around in my life, and I'm 65 years old. And um, if there is a way to figure out how to win this game, Patrick Mahomes will figure it out on the field. Um, but having said that, I just think the obstacles are a little bit too much. I like Philadelphia's lines, obviously. Mm-hmm. I love their offensive line, and I like the depth and the production of their defensive line. Um, I like Philadelphia close, maybe you know, 30 to 
21, something like that, 30 to 23. Um, but I just, I find it hard to believe that Mahomes is going to be able to find a way to make enough plays to beat this team. I, I think you're probably right. I, I would say, though, that listening to these two teams last night, and this is, a, you know, whatever projection, it reminded me of kind of being in the 2018 media night with the Rams and the Patriots, and those two teams were two vastly different teams, right? You had a team that had all the experience in the world in the Patriots, and, you know, we're coming off of losing a really, really great Super Bowl between the Patriots and the Eagles. And then you had the Rams that were this upstart team. And, you know, they kind of didn't know what they didn't know. Yeah. And in some ways were a little bit overwhelmed by the moment. Now, I don't think the Eagles are overwhelmed by the moment at all. I think they have enough veteran leadership and enough guys that have been there before in your Kelsey's, you know, your Brandon Graham's, your Fletcher Cox's of the world, your Lane Johnson's of the world. They understand what this is. But. I think the Chiefs have that little extra something. And, you know, whether it's Patrick Mahomes and how he remembers how the last Super Bowl ended, you know, Andy Reid also knowing how that last Super Bowl ended when they played Tampa. It just is a feeling that I have, which is, you know, metaphorical or whatever. I just I feel like this is going to be Kansas City's game. Wow. Interesting. I'll, I'll say Kansas City 27 to 20. Good. Well, when we get back next Tuesday and we do our review of the Super Bowl pod right here, uh, this will be good. Somebody will have bragging rights and somebody will be an imbecile. Absolutely. Hey, it's yeah. a trophy or Jordan face society. So <laughs> if, I, if I get the Jordan face, I get the Jordan face. Hey, Miles, thanks so much. It's great being on set with you. It's great being in the same place with you. This Absolutely. is. Uh, This has been a lot of fun. And listen, everybody, enjoy the game this week, and we'll be back next week to dissect uh, Super Bowl 57 right here on the Peter King Podcast presented by Salesforce. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mow and Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner, too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a like a good neighbor. Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.